Steiner. I'm the family and student pastor here at BCC, and it's wonderful to see all of you this morning. Uh, as we begin today, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open those up to Matthew chapter 21. Now, I once heard a story about a boy on Palm Sunday who got sick. And so he stayed home with his mom while his dad and his other siblings went to church. And after the service was over and the family returned, his dad came home with a palm branch in his hand. And then, of course, this little boy who stayed home was very curious. He says, Dad, you know, why, why do you have that palm branch? And so his dad tried to explain it to him. He said, well, son, you see, when Jesus came to town, the people began waving palm branches and celebrating him. And so today we were given a palm branch, and you know, the little boy replied, he said, Ah, oh, shucks, you know, the one Sunday I don't go to church is the day that Jesus shows up. <laughs> you, you know, today is Palm Sunday, and uh, it's the day that we read about in all four of the Gospels where the whole city of Jerusalem come together and they essentially throw Jesus a parade you know, as Jesus rode into the city, the people, they would wave palm branches, and they did this in the anticipation of his coming, and therefore we get the name Palm Sunday. But we also call this account the triumphal entry. Now, this passage of scripture, it's extremely important because Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, it, it's what sets the stage for everything that takes place later that week, the crucifixion the resurrection, and by declaring him king and savior of both Israel and the world, the people celebrate. This is the start of what we refer to today as Holy Week. You know, the words used to represent the experience of this week, I mean, they're many, and they represent the ups and downs of what Jesus would have experienced that week we're not only going to be looking at this this morning, but we want to look at it throughout this week as well. We'll be having a Good Friday service where we're going to look at the crucifixion. We're also going to celebrate Easter next Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And some of the words that we see in Scripture concerning this week are, are, are words like Hosanna that we just sang. Confrontation. Betrayal, denial, trial, scourging, crucifixion, and even tomb. And then, then we get the most electrifying sentence ever uttered. He is not here. He is risen. Amen? Listen, this morning, I want to take a close look at this passage. I want to look at the biblical account of Palm Sunday, and I want to talk about what it means for us today. How should we be affected by Palm Sunday? Author and minister, uh, a gentleman by the name of Wallace Vietz, he's, he's quoted as saying this. He says, Palm Sunday is at its best a day of temporary triumph, but at worst, it's an illustration of the fickle nature of the voice of the people. So Palm Sunday, it began as a day of worship, and it began as a day of applause as Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last time. You see, Jesus and his disciples, they, they were on the Jericho Road, as it was called, and they had climbed most of the treacherous way up the 17 miles or so that kind of twisted and turned 
from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Jesus came to Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover feast, and this would have been a time when hundreds, even thousands of people were making this journey. Hundreds and thousands of pilgrims were making their way and crowding into Jerusalem. And in Matthew 21, 1 through 3, we read, As they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So as he came to Bethphage, he would have been surrounded by people. Again, they were heading up to Jerusalem. And I wonder what it must have been like for Jesus finally to kind of reach the top of the Mount of Olives and to look over this city, the city of Jerusalem. And I imagine he would have seen great crowds of people streaming out of the city gates. This would have happened because word was spreading that the king was coming. So the pilgrims that were already in the city, they were coming out to meet him. And I want you to think about what that must have been like. Remember, this is long before cell phones and this is long before social media. You know, there was 20, no 24-hour news programs that would have got the word out that Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem. There wouldn't have even been any billboards or if you take it back a little bit longer, no tele, telegraphs that were sent ahead. I don't know what this must have looked like. The closest thing that I can even start to put into my mind is probably nowhere near this. It doesn't even touch it. But I remember when I was in college, I went to college in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm a big Atlanta Braves fan, and I remember kind of in the midst of all their their pennants that they were winning, I remember they had just won the National League pennant, and uh, Basically, they had won it on the road, so they were coming home late at night. And I remember somebody watched the, the evening news in like the late edition down there, which is like 11 o'clock. And, and we found out that the Braves would be flying into the airport, and basically they were going to like let them parade through a terminal. So any fans that wanted to come out, come on out. So people started spreading the word. And I remember hopping, a bunch of us hopped in somebody's car, and we drove down before 2001. You know, you could actually go into the terminal without having a ticket. And so everybody walked out to the terminal, probably hundreds, maybe thousands or so people lined up and some had signs, didn't have palm branches, but they had the signs like, we love whoever, and then, you know, Chipper Jones and Terry Pendleton and Fred McGriff and Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin would walk by and everybody's cheering and trying to get high fives. And that's the closest like I could think to what must have been going on, what this would have looked like as we're, well, you know, instead of cheering on the Braves, People are cheering on Jesus. And this town was packed. And people are out there. And I think what had happened at this point of Jesus' ministry, his disciples actually were listening to him. Uh, they, were, they were doing what he, what he asked. And so if we skip ahead uh, to verse 6, uh, we'll come back to 4 and 5 in a moment. But if we skip ahead to verse 6, it says, The disciples went and they did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And no matter how trivial this errand may have seemed, like, we might even say, why would, you know, what does it matter that these guys went and got this donkey? What does it matter that they went and got this colt? Well, 
Matthew explains it right here. There's so much biblical and theological significance here. In verse 4 it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here, what Matthew's doing is he's referring to this Old Testament passage of the prophet Zechariah. We find it in Zechariah 9.9. The people of Israel had always understood Zechariah's prophecy to refer to the Messiah, who is God's anointed king. So when Jesus himself rides into town on this donkey, not just any donkey, but this specific purebred colt, as Zechariah had promised, Jesus was presenting himself to the people of Israel, as their promised king. It's almost by his actions that he's showing up and he's saying, see, your king comes to you. The Jews knew their scripture. And so many people in the crowd, they would have remembered the words of Zechariah and they would have recognized exactly what it is that Jesus was doing here. And because they recognized it, and because they knew what was happening, verse 8, it tells us a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that had followed, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So they understand what's happening. So if they really truly believe that Jesus is going to be their king, then all his loyal subjects must recognize his kingship. And so the Jews, they show that they do this, they understand this by calling him the son of David. And also, as it says, they begin to lie out their cloaks in front of him for the donkey to ride over. Now that's important we understand, this was an ancient custom of that day. People would throw down their garments and they would make this carpet for the royal procession. I mean, we haven't gotten too far away from it today, have we? Red carpet affairs. But people, they laid down their coats and Jesus, he's receiving this royal treatment just like the prophet Zechariah said he would. And all of Israel's prophets, they... They also promised that one day God himself would arrive, that the kingdom of God was coming. He was coming to rescue his people, and he was coming to rule the world. Now the crowds, as they emphasized this Davidic kingdom, as they're sitting there saying, calling him the son of David, it reminds them, it reminds us that Jesus is from the line of David, who the Messiah was promised through and also it accurately, accurately you know, summarizes the popular impression that the kingdom of God was on its way. It was going to be here shortly. There were times in scripture that the prophets spoke about the coming king and who would ride into Jerusalem and he would bring with him justice and peace. So Jesus, by doing all of this, he's activating these hopes in all of these people, that he is their king. And everyone there is ecstatic. And what I find so interesting here is this. Even though the people during this time, they had not yet even understood exactly what the crucifixion was or even the resurrection. Remember, this doesn't even take place for several days. They asked Jesus, their rightful king, to save them. 
They welcome him as their victorious savior. They take palm branches and they sing and they shout, Hosanna. And you might ask, because the account we read was out of Matthew, and nowhere in Matthew does it say that they took palm branches. You know, in fact, in verse 8 here, chapter 21, it just says that they cut branches down from the trees, but like I tried to explain earlier, this is one account in Scripture that takes place in all four Gospels. And as we look into John's account, John explains in chapter 12, verse 13 of his Gospel, he says they took palm branches. And they went out to meet him. And I think it's important that we understand that these are palm branches that they're carrying. Because in that time, palm branches, they were this ancient symbol of victory. During the Maccabean revolt, which took place in 167 to 160 BC, the Jews, they minted coins that actually had palm fronds on them. And these were supposed to be emblematic of their victory over the Greeks during this revolt. So they're celebrating. This is a victory for them. And the word Hosanna, I want you to know, we sang it as a, as a word of praise and a word of worship, but in its original context, it is so much more than a word of praise. It's also a prayer. Originally, it's taken from Psalm 118, and it's a cry for help. If we look at verse 25, it says, Lord, save us. Now later on, yes, it becomes an invocation of blessing. It becomes an acclamation of praise. But right here in its most basic meaning, it means save or save us. They're crying out when they're saying, Hosanna, son of David. They're saying, oh Lord, save us. Jesus, save us. But what kind of salvation are they actually asking him for? What are they asking for him to save them from? Philip Ryken, he, he's a former president of Wheaton College. He writes, the crowds hardly understood that day what they were saying. Many of them, they were looking for some kind of a political deliverance. But that is not the kind of victory that Jesus came to win. He came to give his life as an atonement for sin. The salvation he offers, it says, is deliverance from sin, from death, and from the eternal wrath of God. Therefore, to ask for his salvation is to confess. It's to confess that you are a guilty sinner who deserves to be condemned for your sins. So Hosanna is partly, it's partly a cry of victory, he says, It recognizes that, yes, Jesus has the power to save, but it's also a desperate cry of the needy, a cry of desperate, just desperation of a sinner, of a sinner who needs a Savior. It's his prayer. Save me, Jesus. Or as the people said on Palm Sunday, Hosanna to the Son of David. You know, as we can see, Palm Sunday, it began with joy. As Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time, the people are celebrating. The people are worshiping. But what began as a day of praise and a day of applause, it it ended. It ended with weeping. It ended with sobbing. The, the, The word that is used is sobbing over Jerusalem. And the person who was sobbing is Jesus. 
If we look at Luke's account of this day, Luke says in Luke 19.41, he says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The city that celebrates him in this moment as Jesus is coming into the city and people are waving their palm fronds and they're singing out Hosanna to him. Jesus' response is to sob. What is he crying about? Why is, why is he sobbing? I imagine this day had to be a bitter, sweet day for Jesus. You know, on Sunday he's being celebrated and he's in the midst of celebration as he begins to sob. You know, I wonder if he's thinking about Friday. I wonder if he knows that Friday's on its way, that the cross is coming. Is this the reason he weeps? Did he cry because he knew he was just five short days away from the cross? This morning, I I would have to answer no. This isn't why he weeps. You know, think about it. Jesus has lived every moment of his life with the knowledge of this certain appointment. Listen, this was declared before the beginning of the foundations of the earth that Jesus Christ would go to the cross. This isn't sneaking up on him. This isn't a surprise to him. And yes, we learn later in the week, he prays that if it's Lord's will, that the cup would be taken from him. But I don't believe that's why he's crying right now. In fact, just a few days earlier, he tells his disciples, he says, listen, I'm going to die here. I'm going to die in Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was up. I think the reason he weeps is because I believe he knows that many people in this crowd, many people that are worshiping him in this moment, within a few short days, they're going to exchange words of praise for words of death. And I think that's what breaks Jesus' heart. These people who right now in this moment are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory in the highest. Later on, they're the same crowd that are going to be singing, crucify him, crucify him. As he stands at his trial before Pilate, I think Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. I think he weeps more specifically over the people of Jerusalem because he knew they were searching for salvation everywhere except where they could find it, and he was standing right in front of them. He wept at their loud hosannas because they had missed the point. They were actually shouting, save us, O Lord, but what they were expecting to be saved from, what they were wanting was political freedom. They wanted political freedom from the Messiah. And so they celebrate him as the soon-to-be king, the one who's going to save them. But they reject him in this moment as their savior. This is why Jesus weeps. Jesus wept for the lives he had come to save. And these people, they continually ran from his rescue. He was the way that they would not take He was the truth that they would not believe in, and he was the life that they would not receive. And the thought of it, it made him openly sob. And I wonder this morning if this still breaks his heart today. How many people have heard the good news, the good news of Jesus and what he's done for them, but yet they still have yet to respond to it? I could possibly be speaking to some of you this morning. 
How many of you week after week hear the good news of Jesus, but you have yet to respond and make a decision to follow him? You know, the Gospel of Luke, this is the only one of these Gospels that actually give us Jesus' words to the city of Jerusalem. The words, i got to tell you, they're ominous and they're telling. The ongoing issue of the people Israel faced is they were unwilling to listen for the word of the Lord. Jesus has arrived in their very presence, but just like their ancestors before them, they could not accept him. They couldn't accept the fact that God himself was showing up in their very presence. As we continue to look at the book of Luke, we see that the people who should have understood this the best, the religious leaders of that day who knew prophecy, who should have seen that this was Jesus, the Messiah. These are the very people that struggled that day and could not understand it. In fact, as we look at this account, listen to what happens. is The people are worshiping and they're waving their palm fronds and they're, they're crying out Hosanna and they're singing to Jesus. In Luke 19, 39 through 44, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I guess they were getting just a little bit too crazy for the religious leaders of the day. And listen to Jesus' response. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Man, I don't know about you, but I don't want no stone worshiping in my place. I mean, for real. Do you ever think about that? I don't want any stone worshiping Jesus in my place. I'm glad they do it. But I want to be the one that makes a little bit louder noise than a rock. It says, I tell you, he replied. Again, I'll just read it again. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry it out. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in from every side. I don't know if he came to save them from the Romans. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, I read a commentary over this passage, and I read several of them, but this really caught my attention. It says this, it says, creation is aware of Jesus, but the leadership of the nation is not That which is lifeless knows life when it sees it, even though that which is living does not. Jesus knows that he will not be accepted as Israel's king, which is extremely sad. His people. pastor by the name of Scotty Smith, he writes a lot of blogs, and in one of his blogs he was writing about Palm Sunday, and he called it a, a prayer for Palm Sunday, and in it he writes this. He says, no other king would give his life and death For the redemption of rebels and idolaters like us. No other king can possibly make slaves of sin into prisoners of hope. Lord Jesus, you are that king. The king of glory. The monarch of mercy. The governor of grace and the prince of peace. The king of kings and the lord of lords. Jesus was their king and they were missing it. And once again I ask the question, are we missing the point too? Today on Palm Sunday, are we missing the point of why our Savior came? Because in this passage, most scholars believe the reason the 
people praised him that day was for one of two reasons. The first reason is this, because Jesus performed miracles. Because he healed the sick, he gave the blind sight, he even raised people from the dead. Essentially, these people are praising him because he served them. He was giving them what they needed. He was giving them what they wanted, and so they felt obliged to worship. And the second reason is, we've mentioned this a couple times, is because they saw in Jesus a way to be politically delivered from the Romans. They were expecting in that moment to be freed from Rome the same way God had earlier freed the Israelites from Egypt. But Jesus did not come to save the Israelites from Rome. He came to save them from their own sin. He came to save them from death. And so once again, their praise was tempered with the attitude of Jesus, what can you do for me? And I do, I wonder if sometimes we're the same way. As long as we get what we want and as long as Jesus takes care of our needs and our wants, and as long as things play out the way that we think they should, then we give Jesus our praise. But what happens when things don't quite go our way? You know, what if life gets just a little bit tough? What if something bad happens to us? Do we, do we get upset with him? Do we turn our backs on him? Do we allow Satan to whisper lies that we start to accept and believe much the same way that the people of Israel listened to the lies of the religious leaders of that day? Do we cry out, crucify him? You know, the people of Jerusalem, they praised him on Sunday. Things look good. It looks like their expectations and their needs are going to be met. I mean, here comes this ruler that's going to free them and is going to heal them and is going to take care of all of their needs. But what must it have felt like for them when just five days later when he stood at trial, beaten and disfigured? What must have that Savior looked like to them? Because all of a sudden, I think doubt starts to creep into their mind. This doesn't look like a deliverer. <laughs> this doesn't look like much of a conqueror. Here he is. He's the one who's been beaten. He's the one who's been shamed. And I think people's minds starts to change. The religious leaders, once again, they begin to speak out. And they begin to tell all sorts of lies about him. So he'll be arrested. And so the crowd will jump on their side again. We as the people, we can become pretty finicky pretty fickle we can praise him on sunday and we can curse him on thursday and that's exactly what was happening right here a lot of times it becomes all about me me and 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 me theologian nt righty once said we arrive at jerusalem with jesus the question presses upon us are we going along for the trip in the hope that jesus will fulfill some of our hopes and desires are we ready to sing a psalm of praise, but only as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want? The long and dusty pilgrim way of our lives gives most of us plenty of time to sort out our motives for following Jesus in the first place. 
Are we ready, he says, not only to spread our cloaks on the road in front of him to do the showy and the flamboyant thing, but also now to follow him into trouble, controversy, trial, and even death. I guess what I want us to think about this morning is this. Do you show up at church on Sunday and give God your praise, only to walk out of these doors and then make it about you the rest of the week? Are we making some of the same mistakes that those in Jerusalem made that week? Are we missing the point of Jesus? And is he weeping for us this morning? Do our words we sing on Sunday, do they match our hearts on Friday? Is our faith casual or, or is our faith committed? Do we have religion but miss out on the personal relationship with Jesus. I wonder if we're like the religious leaders that Jesus described in the passage of Matthew 15, 8 and 9. He's actually quoting Isaiah 29, 13. I'll be reading out of Matthew though. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You know, there's a story that's told about a man and a woman who'd been married for 50 years. And the husband, he wasn't much of a talker. In fact, he rarely talked at all. And because of that, he never really ever told his wife that he loved her. Day after day would go by and he would never speak those words to her. And so finally she got fed up with it and she confronted him and she says, why don't you ever tell me that you love me? I just want to hear those words. I don't, I don't get it. I've not heard those words since our wedding day. Well, the husband, he just kind of looked at her and he said, well, listen, I told you those words 50 years ago when I meant it. And if anything ever changes, I will let you know. All right? The thing is, all of us want to hear those words. We want to hear, I love you, especially from those who are the most important people to us. And I believe the same is true of God. He delights in our praise. He delights in the praise of his name in his character, in all that he does and will always do for us. Praise is simply telling God that you love him. And every day that we are given the gift of life should begin and it should end with the praise of our Lord and our Savior. Not because we have to, not because we feel obligated to, but because we get to. We get to profess our love and devotion for him and this should be considered a privilege but according to Matthew 15, 8, mere words are not enough. True word, or I'm sorry, true love will be proclaimed not only in words, but it's also proclaimed in action. It's proclaimed in deed. Matthew 15, 8, 9, it warns the person who offers empty, meaningless praise. How is such a person characterized? Well, he or she, they're characterized as saying the right things, but having a heart that is far from God. And I want us to understand that God is not pleased by our words alone. God can't be tricked by a smooth tongue or a flattering speech. God, he sees straight into our heart. He sees exactly who we are. And he desires the praise from our lips that is rooted in the truth of our deeds. Listen, perfection is not required. But he is pleased by the praise of those who are earnestly seeking him and are surrendered to him completely.
Do you praise God each day? And if so, is that praise in both word and deed? Or are you guilty, like many of these Israelites probably were, of offering lip service to the only one who is worthy of all our praise? The wonderful thing about God's Word and the wonderful thing, hopefully, about the way messages are preached at a church is that everything should be connected. And we've spent a lot of time talking about what it means to be a disciple, to serve God, to follow after Him, to follow His will and His call for our life. And we don't do it out of obligation. And we do it out of our love for Him. When we serve Him, it should be an act of worship. And so I challenge you this morning to think about where your hearts are. Are you giving God his due praise? And there's this legend that's told about this village in Spain. And the villagers, they learned that their king was coming to town. And this was rare because in the thousand years of this village's existence, the king had never come. No king. But now this king who was serving in their time decides to visit their cities. And as you can imagine, the excitement grew. The people were excited and they said, listen, we have got to throw a big celebration. We've got to show our king how much we appreciate him. But the problem is they couldn't do anything real extravagant because this was a poor village. But the one thing the village had going for them was they... They were kind of in like the wine country, the grape country, and so everybody was known for making wine. And so somebody had this great idea that everyone would bring their wine as a tribute to the king. So they got this big empty vat, and they put stairs going up to it with an opening in the top, and each person was supposed to take their best wine and just get a glass of it a glass of their best wine, and they would come down and they would pour it into this vat, and then everybody, you know, would, would pour theirs in, and, and certainly all these wonderful wines together would, would be something that the king would, would enjoy. And so the following day, that's what they did. Hundreds of people lined up through the town square, and there were stairs leading up, and they'd just go up to the top of the vat, and they'd pour their wine in, and they'd climb down, and, and that was it. And the whole town showed up for it. And the next day is when the king arrived, and he was taken to the town square and the, the people were cheering and they were excited and they were celebrating and they took him right up to the vat and they gave him this silver goblet and so he went up and he went up to the spigot and he poured himself some wine and he tasted it. And the crowd waited with anticipation but nothing happened. He didn't react. In fact, he looked puzzled and he looked confused and he looked almost upset. And so somebody else took it and they tasted it. And it was just water. You see, people had this idea that, you know what, they weren't quite willing to give up their best wine. But everybody else was. So they'd be able to just fill up their glass with water. And they'd be able to go and they'd be able to pour their water into this vat where everybody else had poured wine and nobody would ever be the wiser. But the problem is, is that's what every single person in that town did. Everybody else thought, the good wine was going to come from somebody else, and all that they offered was water. And I sometimes wonder if Jesus is waiting for our best wine, and all we're willing to give them is our water. We expect everybody else to, to praise Him, and maybe if everybody else does, it's good enough. But what I want to 
I guess, get us to think about here on Palm Sunday of 2021 is to choose to honor our great King, Jesus Christ, by giving him our very best, withholding nothing from him, giving him our all, not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. If you want to know why we encourage you to get involved in the stuff in this church life other than Sunday mornings, it's because I'm just going to be honest, I don't think one hour is good enough to give to God. That's just my opinion, but I think God might have something to say about it as well. That's why we encourage you to get involved, to serve, to honor Him, to pray, to serve others. When we do this stuff, we honor Him and we worship Him. That's why we ask you to get involved. That's why we ask you to connect with each other. I believe God is honored and worshiped through fellowship. So how can you get involved? Let's celebrate Jesus this week. Let's celebrate him each and every day. And let's take it beyond this week because Jesus is the only one who went to the cross for us. He's the only one that did that for the forgiveness of our sins. He's the only one that has ever conquered death. Even those who came back to life, he's the one who brought them back. He's the only one that's conquered death. He's the only one that gives us the hope, the promise of eternal life. He is the only one worthy of all of our praise. I want to invite each of you. Invite each of you to take this week seriously. I want to encourage you to be here Friday night as we we look at the cross. It always has amazed me how we call it Good Friday. When we're looking at the death of Jesus. But I think we can call it good because we know the end result. And that's what takes place on Sunday. And so we want you to be here on Sunday as we celebrate Easter and we celebrate Jesus' resurrection and we, we talk about the hope and the promise of what that means for each of us. Now before we wrap up this morning, I want to take us back to one more event from this week. From this last week of Jesus' life. And I want you to know it takes place after Palm Sunday. It takes place after what we've talked about today. But it happens right before the crucifixion. The day before, the evening before. And it's referred to as the Last Supper. This is where Jesus and his disciples, where they're meeting in what's called the upper room. And they're sharing the Passover meal together. And in the midst of this, Jesus stops everything and he says, listen, I want you to understand that everything that's happening, it's about me. That this meal that we're, we're talking about, this Passover, it's about me. That this bread that we're going to break from right here, this is about me. It's about my body. That this wine, it's, it's about my blood. It's about what I shed for you. And he's telling them that, and he's, he's trying to get their minds focused on what's to come. And the Apostle Paul, he, he's reminding the church at Corinth sometime later what happened on this night. He's encouraging them to do the same thing. And I believe that these would be our word, his words, I'm sorry, for us today as well. It's out of 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. And he, he says this, again, this is Paul talking to the church. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this is why we do it each and every week. Book of Acts, it tells us that when the church got together, they broke bread together. And we do it so we remember. I don't know about you, I have a short-term memory. I do. And unfortunately, it affects how I think about Jesus. So I think when we take time each and every week to remember what he did, it helps us worship him in the way we should. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, Lord. And we thank you for this story. I, 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 no, not a story. We, I thank you for this true life event, Lord, that happened. That we know what it was like for you to ride into the city of Jerusalem, what it must have looked like, what it must have been like. And Father, I believe you were honored there, but the fact that you wept, the fact that you were thinking about what we as a people would be like after our praise is what kind of breaks my heart and gives me something to think about. And I pray that it does each and every person here as well. And so, Father, right now, we, we celebrate you. We want to celebrate you, not just this week, not just today, but every day of our life. And, Lord, this thing we're about to do, communion, Lord, where we remember your body, we remember your blood. Father, it is a chance each and every week to remind ourselves of what you did because we confess your death until you come. And so, Lord, let us confess that and let us confess your life. Let us celebrate this week as we talk about your death, your burial, and your resurrection. And remember, the tomb was empty. He is risen. It's in Jesus' name I pray.